Welcome to the Scripts and Scribes podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Fukunaga, and today we welcome screenwriter Rhett Reese to the show. Uh, along with co-writer Paul Wernick, Rhett has written such blockbuster films as Zombieland and G.I. Joe Retaliation. Rhett has also contributed to hit animated films Monsters, Inc. and Dinosaur, and was tapped to adapt both Marvel Comics properties Deadpool and Venom uh, into film. And hopefully somewhere in there, he and Paul can resurrect Zombieland for this much-anticipated sequel. Thank you for joining me today, Rhett. Hey, good to be here. How are you? Good, good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, happy post-Halloween. Thank you so much. Happy post-Halloween yourself. (laughs) Thanks. Now, um, I, I am bloated on candy right now, so it all worked out for me. So you had a good Halloween then, I take it? Uh, very good, yes. Excellent. Now, um, why don't you tell everybody what you went for Halloween as? I, I think it's pretty fun. Oh, yeah. So uh, for Halloween, I went as uh, uh, one of the terrorists uh, from uh, Die Hard, uh, specifically the terrorist who uh, Bruce Willis, who John McClane kills, and then uh, dresses in a T-shirt and writes in blood on the T-shirt, now I have a machine gun, ho, ho, ho. Uh, this poor terrorist gets a Santa hat put on his head and sent down an elevator as a message to Hans Gruber, and I went as that dead terrorist. Which is which is really funny. Um, how did it play? Did people get it right away? What was the name? Can you remember the name? What was the name of the, that uh, Hans Gruber purported uh, of the terrorist organization he purported to be part of uh, for the for the sake of the FBI that's a good trivia question i can't remember it right now it's like I the i don't know but i do have the internet the, the red dawn or something like yeah, that something or no like was, that. yeah anyway i i just i don't know why that's it. so i was a member of the red dawn crew or whatever it was so did people get it right away what you were uh, uh you know it was it was received well by people of a certain age group and less right. well by people of a younger age group um so i'm trying to see hans gruber character was part of it was all made up i mean it was all because he wasn't really part he wasn't really part of the terrorist organization he was he was there to steal uh bearer bonds um but that said uh it would be fun to try to dig that up i want to say crimson jihad but i think that was true lies um well, I'm going to look it up while we... Or, you know, maybe there wasn't even one. Maybe it was just the news crew that was speculating which of the different oh. organizations he could have been part of. I, I, you know what? I, I just... My diehard trivia, apparently I need to, to polish, polish it up. <laughs> uh, cool. I'm going to look that up and see if we can find that. Um, but I wanted to, to start quickly with a couple of quick questions. Um, this is one that I, I think that uh, we're going to start asking every writer that we have on the show because I think it's, it's definitely insightful. Um, what was the first script you ever wrote? What was it about, and where is it sitting now? Oh, my gosh, that's a great question. And, and the answer is pretty funny in my particular case. Uh, my first screenplay I wrote a long time ago, right out of college, and it was called Out of the Dark, and it was about a male uh, vampire, a good guy male vampire, who fell in love with a female human human, and it was essentially Twilight. I mean, it was crazy, long before Twilight, but the only difference being they weren't in high school. She was in, she was, they were right out of college, but it was basically a 21-year-old male vampire who was a good guy who fell in love with, uh, with this uh, human female, and they had adventures and stuff. And, and 
I, I would cringe to go back and look at it, but it, I guess I had my finger on the pulse of something in it well in advance of the actual phenomenon. Unfortunately, it didn't work out. But so you created Twilight before Twilight. Yeah, maybe. Um, and so where is it sitting now? Oh my gosh, it is sitting, uh, you know, in a East German mine shaft, five thousand feet <laughs> under the earth, because I, I that's where I buried it, so no one will ever find it. It was very much a first screenplay. Right. Um, you know, it's like you, you don't really know what you're doing when you start off, and so you do your best. And uh, I remember it got covered by the CAA coverage people, and, and they had to either say recommend or pass or consider, and they, and they checked the consider box, and that was fueling my tank to keep me going for another couple of years that they didn't totally loathe it. But, but it was not uh, high enough quality to get made, I promise you that. <laughs> well, that's pretty impressive. You've got to consider first off the bat, right out of the gate. Yeah, not the worst. Yeah. Um, how did you land your first agent or manager? Uh, I, uh, when I was about three scripts in, um, I went out uh, to, I was out at breakfast with a, a producer, and a manager walked up uh, to um, the table, and uh, the producer was sitting with introduced me to the manager. And this was in the old days when you couldn't email scripts. You had to have your, your hard copies of your scripts in the trunk of your car in case you ever met anyone you, you wanted to hand them the script. Well, thankfully, I did have multiple copies of each of my scripts in the, in the trunk of my car, and the manager and the producer got to talking, and the producer said, you should read his stuff. And next thing you know, I'm running to my car, and I'm handing out the scripts. And, <laughs> and the manager is a guy by the name of Robert Stein, and Robert uh, wanted to represent me off those scripts. And so... Um, after a little bit of wooing, um, I said yes, and he became my manager. Oh, great. Um, now, before you start writing a screenplay, and I know you write a lot of stuff uh, with your writing partner, Paul, um, before you guys start writing a draft of a screenplay, do you start normally with a treatment, a beat sheet, index cards, none of those, all of those? Yeah, I mean, generally we do. We outline with index cards, and we then we and from there we create a pitch, um, or a treatment, and uh, and from there we create a screenplay. I mean, there are exceptions to that rule. There have been certain screenplays over the years where I got really fired up and just sat down and started writing and, mm -hmm. and just wrote by the seat of my pants. And I think that's an exhilarating, exhilarating way to write. Uh, it's also a pretty high-risk way to write because... Mm -hmm because if it's not outlined in advance, oftentimes you can go off the rails. But I've written some of my very best stuff over the years and worst stuff that way, writing fast. But generally, uh, you, you have to outline it pretty heavily in advance because that's asked of you by the studios or the production companies or whoever's hiring you. They generally want a template in advance of what, of what you're going to do so that they can be sure that you're not going to go off the rails. Right. Um, now, how do you handle script notes that you vehemently disagree with? Um, you know, it's it's hard. It's very very hard when you vehemently disagree. Uh, you know, you 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 kind of duck and cover sometimes. You know, sometimes you will address the note partway or address the least objectionable things about the note, <laughs> right. or you'll talk to them and say, well, you know, even though you gave us this specific prescription, you know, you know, what if we were to do this instead? We think it gets at the same idea and, you know, talk someone out of it. You tend to have to be a little bit of a lawyer in these rooms. You have to be able to, you know, make an argument and make a case and convince someone that something's bad if it is indeed bad. The other thing you can always do is just, you know, try the note uh, and, and, and show them, you know, that it is bad, you know, and, and you can also say, hey, we did try it and it, and it 
it didn't work and and then provide pages. You know, sometimes we'll, we'll, we will try it and see that it obviously doesn't work and then kind of put those pages aside and do something else, give them the, the second thing and then say, hey, the first thing didn't work and if you want to see the pages, we're happy to show them to you. Um, so that way they can see for themselves that it didn't work. Anyway, there are any number of different you know, strategies you can use to get out from under a really bad note. Um, now, yeah, I'm a huge Zombieland fan. I think it's a fantastic film. I like the genre in general, too. Um, where did you guys get the idea for Zombieland? Where did it come from? Uh, well, Zombieland actually was, uh, it was inspired by watching the new Dawn of the Dead. Uh, I was watching the new Dawn of the Dead, and I really enjoyed it a lot, and I liked the fact that it was somewhat funny. Like, it was, it was scary, but it had a, a good sense of humor to it. And I just thought, at the time, wouldn't it be cool to, to kind of push it a little further into, into comedy, you know, to, to explore the comedy even more. This was mm -hmm. before uh, we had seen Shaun of the Dead. Um, and we also, Paul and I, very mercenar mercenarily looked at the landscape of television at that time, and we realized that zombies had never been on TV. Mm -hmm. And so we originally wrote Zombieland not as a movie, but as a TV pilot. And it was just because we thought the marketplace might be willing to go for something like that. And, and uh, unfortunately, it wasn't. You know, we sold it to CBS. Um, CBS uh, didn't make it. We ended up getting it back. They were good enough to give it back. And we tried to get it off the ground with every other network, and no one would do it. Like, they just didn't buy the idea of zombies on TV. And ultimately, Chris Parnell over at Sony um, and Gavin Pallone, our producer, uh, convinced uh, Sony TV to let us expand the script into a feature-length script, which we did. And um, it was intended to be like a backdoor pilot or a straight-to-DVD movie, but it got a little too expensive for that, and Gavin Pallone ended up taking it over to Sony Pictures, and it became a movie. So it was a very strange, circuitous route um, for, a, for a pilot to actually become a movie, but it did. Hmm. Um, now, talking about Zombieland, the TV series, I know that you guys recently worked with Amazon Studios to produce Zombieland yeah. as a TV series. Can you tell me what that experience was like for you, um, generating a new TV pilot for Amazon Studios? You know, again, it was terrific. I mean, it was terrific right up until the moment that they said they weren't moving forward to series, <laughs> uh, which was a big disappointment. Right. Um, uh, it was, you know, Amazon is uh, a group of young, talented uh, people who are really dedicated to trying to give, you know, the customer, or in this case, the viewer, what they want. Um, they loved the brand of Zombieland. They were very supportive. They enjoyed our pilot. Uh, you know, they gave us a fair amount of money. They they were very excellent to us creatively. They had good ideas, and yet they didn't stomp on our own, you know, script. Um, and they were very supportive. And so we were thrilled to have done it for them. And ultimately, they didn't move forward, and that was really disappointing. But you know, it's a business, and they had to choose which pilots they thought, you know, best would best appeal to their demographic and the people they're going for, and they chose two other pilots, and that's that's life, and we would certainly work with Amazon again. We had a terrific experience with them, and uh, we hold no grudge. It was uh, it was a bummer that it didn't move forward, but but we would we would certainly work with them again. In fact, we're talking with them about working together again, so. Oh, that's great. Um, now, but with all the success, I mean, uh, I heard that The Walking Dead, uh, you know, season premiere this for the new season was sort of record breaking for cable. All the success of Zombies is is there impetus for Zombieland Two? Is there more 
you know. Well, I mean, I mean, sure. I mean, Zombieland Two, Zombieland Two has not come together for various different uh, reasons. Um, but uh, we we think Zombieland the brand really has legs. We think it should be another movie. We think it should be a TV show. We think it should be. Uh, you know, a, uh, a Broadway play, in fact. We've talked about that. A, <laughs> awesome. a musical. We think a musical of Zombieland would really be fun. So we really believe in the brand. Uh, we, we, you know, would have been most happy to see it become a TV series because that's what we always intended. So it was just we had all these future adventures planned for our characters, and, and, and a movie really only gives you so many opportunities to go on those adventures, whereas we thought a TV show, which came back every week, would be perfect. So I think that's the medium we would most prefer to see it on and in. Um, and it's a little bit of a head-scratcher why, with the success of Walking Dead, why you know, Zombieland, the TV series, has not been jumped at by somebody else. Mm-hmm. I think that... You know, sometimes in television there's a little bit of a sloppy seconds feel where if something doesn't work somewhere, someone's a little loath to, to pick it up and run with it because they're afraid it's tainted or that if it didn't work somewhere, someone else made the decision not to do it and they air it and it doesn't work, you know, everybody will look at them and say, well, geez, I mean, something, you know, you should have seen the handwriting on the wall. If they didn't like it, why did you like it? So I think there's a little bit of a difficulty in getting a, a you know a, a project that you've already shot a pilot on up and running somewhere else. So it may not happen, but uh, but we would love to see it happen, or and we'd love to see a movie sequel. And again, you know, whatever we think the the brand uh, certainly has uh, a, a fan base, and mm-hmm. uh, and we think the tone and and the characters are a lot of fun. Um, well, I would love to see of. Um, uh, Zombieland series get picked up. Somebody has to do a Zombieland musical. I mean, that is just brilliant. Yeah, I mean, I, we, I'm, I'm, you know, envisioning uh, an "Enjoy the Little Things" uh, song. You know, a big uh, number about enjoying the little things. Um, but you know, I mean, I, I think it could be a ton of fun. I really do. And we've, we've discussed it with Sony. Uh, you know, Sony's been our partner from the beginning on Zombieland, and they've been great about, you know. Uh, getting on board with us and, and trying to figure out other ways to, to keep it alive, and, and they still are. Uh, you know, they're still, they're still talking about, you know, strategizing. You know, Chris Parnell uh, is over there, and Scott Landsman are strategizing about, you know, how, ways we can keep Zombieland um, uh, alive. So you never know. Well, especially with, one, the success of zombies uh, today, and as well as the success of comedy musicals like, Book of Mormon and uh, Spam yeah. stuff like that. So I think it'd be right. Fantastic. Yeah, um, and it'd be fun to have some blood and guts on, sure. on the stage too, like a nice R-rated uh, zombie violent, you know, musical. It could be cool. It would be wholly unique. Um, now yeah. I, wa- I wanted to ask you a Zombieland question. What's the story behind Tallahassee, Columbus, Wichita, Little Rock as character names? Did they just sound the best as you were writing it, or like? Is there a story behind Well, I mean, it's funny, but originally uh, they were called something else. They, it was originally Columbus was uh, Flagstaff. Okay. Uh, Ta- Tallahassee was Albuquerque. Uh, and Little Rock was Stillwater. And Little Rock was a boy in the first draft, okay. actually, in the very first draft. And Gavin Plone, our producer, thought that it needed a little bit more female presence. And mm-hmm. he was thinking, could Tallahassee be a woman? And we, we couldn't see Tallahassee as a woman, but... But we we thought, well, what about what about Stillwater? We could turn Stillwater into a into a girl, and that's how Stillwater became, uh, you know, a, a girl. But and then Wichita was the one name that stayed uh, throughout. And the reason the names changed 
was that we were we wanted to shoot in the southwestern desert, so it was supposed to look kind of like Arizona, the whole movie. And mm-hmm. and what happened was the the rebate, uh, the tax rebate that that uh, we got in Georgia made it too attractive not to go shoot the movie in Georgia. And Georgia can double for a lot of things, but it can't double for the uh, the southwestern right. desert. So so uh, we set the movie in Texas instead of Arizona, and then we had to kind of just by virtue of where the characters were when the movie started and where they were traveling, their names had to change. Like it could, Flagstaff and, and Albuquerque didn't work because they were set too far out west, so, so Albuquerque became Tallahassee, Flagstaff became Columbus, and then we really, somebody, I forget who it was, just had the idea of Little Rock as opposed to Stillwater because Little Rock just seemed like a little bit more endearing name for a right. girl. Um, and so that's why it ended up with those four particular names. Oh, cool. Um now, you got your start writing for family films, animated films, such as Monsters, Inc., Dinosaur, Tarzan 2, stuff like that. Um, how did your career path transition into doing sort of big-budget action, uh, uh, Zombieland, G.I. Joe, that kind of stuff? Well, I mean, I think uh, basically what happens is whatever uh, script of yours gets noticed first in Hollywood uh, you end up doing that particular genre for a long time because they they uh, know that you can do it and they don't trust you outside of that genre. So my first script that got noticed was a children's movie, and as a result, I worked for about five or six straight years writing children's movies uh, without uh, leaving that genre. But I think, interestingly, uh, I didn't arrive at writing a children's movie until my sixth screenplay. So I had written five screenplays before that, and they were all action <laughs> you know, they were all kind of more action-y. And one was a movie about, you know, a vampire, and one, obviously, and we already talked about that, and one was a movie about people who were trapped in a cave, spelunkers, and, and anyway, it was, but I, I certainly didn't intend to write family films full-time, so that was always a desire in the back of my mind. And Paul and I ended up partnering up to make some reality TV for a while. Mm-hmm. And then when we pulled out of reality TV and decided to get back into fully scripted stuff, um, uh, zombies just appealed, you know, and it was something that, that, uh, a genre that I had, had loved and, and, uh, and kind of, you know, you know, coerced Paul into, into taking seriously for a heartbeat. And, and we, we did that. And then, and then ultimately kind of Zombieland then, then spurred these other things, you know, big action movies, genre movies, uh, you know, comedy, horror, superhero, that kind of thing. So you, you just, you kind of go where, where Hollywood takes you once an idea hits. And when an idea hits and you become known as those guys, you, you want to ride that if you can. Right, right. Um, now, it, it, Zombieland, the series on Amazon, you are obviously a producer as well as a writer. Um, what sort of responsibility did you have to take on that other than just being a writer Oh, well, you know, it's it's entirely different, you know, writing on a movie versus writing on a TV show. You know, you on a TV show, we were the showrunners, so we kind of made every creative decision in partnership with our studio and our network and with Sony and Amazon. But, you know, we're we're entrusted to run the show creatively. So, you don't just write the screenplay, you make every other decision that a, that essentially a, a film director would make in the other medium. So, you know, we we cast the movie, we we 
you know, we oversaw the editing of the movie. We oversaw, we hired a director and oversaw the, the shooting of the movie. I mean, we didn't, we didn't physically shoot it. Uh, Eli Craig, a wonderful director, did. But, but that said, you know, we made all the hires. We hired all the department heads. We, um, we chose all the music. You know, basically you just make every creative decision uh, the way a, a TV showrunner would, like, you know, a David Chase or, a, mm-hmm. you know, Vince Gilligan, people like that. So you wear a lot more hats in, in, in the television world than you do in the feature world. Um, now, you write a lot with, with Paul, Paul Wernick. Uh, now, yes. what is the creative process writing with a partner for you? I know some, you know, each take a passive draft or some just sit in a room together and hash everything out together. What, what is it like for you guys? It's a little bit of a combination for us. Basically, when we're breaking a story, when we're figuring out the outline, we sit in a room together because you, you really need to be able to bounce off you know, bounce ideas off the other person, and you need to be able to see the cards, the index cards on the, on the bulletin board, and, and you just need to be in the same room. When it comes time to write the screenplay, we split up and we trade scenes. So we basically write from our homes, and Paul will, and I will choose which scenes we each want to write, and we'll leapfrog each other chronologically through the story. And then we trade scenes back and forth, rewriting each other until the movie until the screenplay coalesces into one voice. Hmm. Um, that sounds like, logistically, that would be complicated to do individual scenes and then trying to patch it together, but that's the... Uh, well, maybe, but I, there are also challenges to writing in the same room. I mean, oh, not sure, everyone... Sure, absolutely. Uh, right, you know, not everyone is, is uh, I don't know, wired to do it that way, and, and I certainly had written alone for many years before we partnered up, and so... I just need the freedom to fail by myself in front of a, a keyboard, you know, in front of a monitor right. before I hand something to someone else. And I think that's maybe what drove it a little bit. But, but it's worked quite well for us. It just gives each of us the freedom to do our own thing and then to trade. And, and then, you know, we edit each other. So it ends up coming together pretty nicely at the end. Um, now, you were hired to write uh, G.I. Joe Retaliation, you know, one of the big budget franchise type films. Uh, as well as uh, screenplays for Venom and Deadpool, the Marvel comic series. Uh, what are some of the unique challenges you face when, when writing something like that with so many moving pieces, so much sort of a fan base that you sort of have to keep happy, as well as, the, you know, it's a big property for these studios. These, um, what are some of the unique challenges that you guys have to, to face when writing something like that? Well, it's very, very different, it's, and it's much more challenging. A movie like Zombieland, we... we the, the script existed. It was a low-budget thing. You know, we had a wonderful director come on. Uh, the studio gave us very minimal notes. Uh, the director gave us uh, some good but also reasonably minimal notes. Uh, and we shot it. It was just that simple. Um, G.I. Joe Retaliation couldn't have been more different. Uh, we wrote a draft for, for Channing Tatum to be the star and only to discover that um, essentially, Channing, for schedule reasons and various other reasons, really couldn't be the star. He had to; he could only work on the movie four or five weeks, and so we ended up having to kill him off in the first act. And so, but we'd already written the draft, so we reduced Channing's role, had him uh, die at the end of the first act. Spoiler alert: too late. Uh, and uh, <laughs> and we rewrote the movie for a second protagonist. Um, and that was the character of Flint, played by DJ Katrona. 
And then the studio got to thinking, you know what, maybe we should try to plug in Dwayne Johnson into this because Dwayne is, you know, as, as he's been referred to, franchise Viagra. He does a great job at re-injecting fun into existing franchises. So then we had to rewrite the whole movie a third time, reducing Flint's role and, and, and making the protagonist into the character of Roadblock uh, and giving it that to Dwayne. And then late in the process, they said, you know what, it would be really cool to get an, an older action star in this as the founder of the G.I. Joes, and if maybe we could get someone like Bruce Willis, and we laughed and said, yeah, that would be cool, but you know, would, he, he would never do it, would he? And, and they said, well, why don't you write it and let's find out. So we wrote, we wrote uh, Bruce Willis into the movie and then ended up you know, giving him the pages and going out to dinner with him and convincing him to do it, and he ultimately said yes, which was terrific. But as you can see right there, the script changed dramatically from the very first draft we turned in over the course of those just four big decisions. And, and you know, it's just, there are just so many more moving parts. We had, you know, we had the studio, we had Skydance, we had Hasbro, we had uh, our director, Don, John Chu, uh, we had big stars like like Dwayne and Bruce, who are used to you know being paid attention to and ha having their ideas listened to, and um, and you know that's just a lot of mouths to feed. So it it's, it becomes difficult to to keep your eye on the ball and to hold on to the story and wrap your arms around it and 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 hold it tight and try to make sure it doesn't go off the rails. And uh, I think we we did our absolute best to do that, and I think the movie turned out a, a really fun you know kind of thrill ride kind of movie. Um, but but it's it's just couldn't be more different from a low budget thing, right? Right. Um, now we were talking earlier. Um, you have a, a, an interesting story about when you pitched GI Joe Retaliation to Bruce Willis, and uh, you, you saw. Yeah. Well, we house. we we after we pitched it to him, we went out to dinner in Westwood, and we and he agreed to do it, and and that was awesome. And then he wanted to look at the pages and talk about them. So uh, we went over to his hotel. He was staying at the Beverly uh, Wilshire Hotel while his house was being remodeled in Bel Air, and we went over and we met with him. And then after the meeting, he invited us out on the balcony. It was this beautiful penthouse balcony that wrapped around the hotel and just to, just to look at the view. And so we walked out there, and he was pointing out his house, which was being remodeled in Bel Air. He said, that's kind of where it is. And and of course, I could see my building from the, that vantage point too. So I, so I said to Bruce, "Well, I, I live right there," and and I pointed to this building, and and my building happens to be a high rise that is standing next to uh, a building called Fox Plaza, which is where they shot Die Hard. It's the Nakatomi Building, Nakatomi Plaza, and um, you know, fictionally called the Nakatomi Building. Anyway. Um, so there I'm pointing at my building, which is standing next to the Die Hard building, and Bruce Willis is standing next to me on the balcony, and he says, so wait, wait, which building are you in? And I said, well, you see the Die Hard building? I said, I'm in the one next to it. <laughs> and he got this smirk on his face, and he turned to me, and he said, you mean Nakatomi Plaza? You know, it's like, or the Nakatomi building? I'm not sure the precise words, but just to hear Bruce Willis say the word Nakatomi to me while I was staring at the building with that little smirk on his face and that twinkle in his eye, it just felt like, you know, it, my career was made. Like, I just felt like I can retire now and be happy. And Paul and I were just pinching each other as we left. We're like, that was so cool. Like, um, you, just, you just don't get those. You know, Hollywood is a long slog. You work for years and years to right, push right. boulders up hills, and then they don't end up getting made. And so when you get those few choice moments, you really have to enjoy them and celebrate them. Right, right. 
you get so jaded sometimes that yeah, those you really do. Remind you of why you love movies. Yeah. The most depressing uh, creative place to be ever. Like <laughs> it's a brutal place, and so with the victories when they when they come, uh, you know, even if they're little minor moments, you, you have to savor them. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, now I just wanted to touch base a, one more time on on uh, Amazon Studios on pitching in general. Um, I uh, I'd like to to ask. Uh, writers if they have any sort of interesting or funny stories from a pitch meeting or what they'd like to do to prepare for pitch meetings if they have any specific rituals. You know, I've heard of things, you know, stories where executives fell asleep in a pitch meeting or you know, things like that are completely freezing up. Um, do you have any interesting or funny stories from a pitch meeting? You know, we really don't. I, I you know, we we do a whole dog and pony pitch. Okay. Uh, we have been surprised. Sometimes they don't seem to go well, and they end up doing them. And sometimes they seem to go great, and they end up don't doing them. And so, it's tough to say. I mean, we we've. I don't know if I've got any great pitch stories. I mean, I guess maybe the best was just a, a moment we went in with Gavin Pallone, our Zombieland producer, who's. Mm-hmm just an absolute bulldog, a great guy, and, and a great salesman. And we went in to pitch, I think it was CBS. We pitched something a long time ago. Uh, it was a TV pilot. And we pitched it, and they said, all right, well, we'll think about it. And we walked out of the room. We were in the hall. And Gavin said, you know what? I'm not going to stand for that. And he went back into the room. The door <laughs> closed. About a minute passed. The door opened. Gavin came, comes out, and he goes, they bought it, <laughs> and it was just he. he I, we ne- we have no idea what happened in that room for that minute, but whatever it was, you know, Gavin just put the screws wow. to them, and and I think he told us that he basically went and said, "Stop fucking around." Oh, sorry, maybe I'm not should be saying you that can. on the podcast. And anyway, you can beat me out. Stop yeah. screwing around. Uh, you know, you know, you're going to buy this anyway. Just don't waste our time. Buy it, or else, or else I'm going to get angry. And they went, "Okay." <laughs> just, he browbeat them into buying it. That was probably my favorite pitch story. Uh, you, you hope you don't have great pitch stories because if they're a great story, they were it probably didn't go so hard. Right. Um, no, so another one was the one we, we we sold a pitch to Universal in the room, a movie pitch, the science fiction thing. And we ended up walking out to go to our car, and they bought it, and we were so thrilled. We went out to go to our car, and the parking garage at Universal is the most confusing parking garage. If anyone who's worked in Hollywood knows what I'm talking about, they have this garage over there. that it's, It took us something like 45 minutes to an hour to find our car. Like, And we, at about the half-hour mark, we still couldn't find it. And we got so self-conscious, we were suddenly desperately afraid that the same Universal executive that sold us, or sorry, that bought the idea was going to walk out into the garage and find us still searching for our car 45 <laughs> minutes later and be like, you know what, if we can't entrust you with, with finding your own car, we're certainly not going to trust you with writing this movie. Like, Anyway, we found it before we ran into him, but that was the other funny moment. It's funny. Um, you talked about, uh, you got you and Paul do the whole dog and pony show. What what? The- what are some of the things you've done, or what does that entail for you guys? Oh, we just kind of treat it like a campfire, like mm-hmm. you know, like we're sitting around the campfire telling a story, and we toss back and forth to each other. We're like news anchors throwing, you know, like it's like the SNL uh, weekend update. We okay. we toss back and forth to each other as we're telling it, and um, it's uh, it's fun. I mean, if at, at its best, it should feel like a campfire story, you know, where you're you're on the other end, you're sitting there listening to someone tell a fun story. I mean, that's how Tory stories were told for the you know the vast history of humanity, and and that's kind of what we get into is that idea of just 
you know, picture this. You know, we start with a line like picture this, and then we, we tell it passionately, and, and we drop some jokes in, and we have fun. We just try to have as much fun as we can. Right. Um, do you have any advice for uh, aspiring screenwriter? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, gosh, I, my, my biggest piece of advice is if you can think of anything else to do uh, with your life, do that instead. Like mm-hmm. it's because it's it does require a real per- perseverance and a real tolerance for for uh, helplessness and a tolerance for failure and a tolerance for just you know creative suffering I, I hate to say that but it's true if if however you can think of nothing else you'd prefer to do I think it can be a really thrilling job I mean it's it's a uh, um, and my advice would be simply to arm yourself uh, for for the disappointments because more than anything I mean, apart from talent more than anything uh, the job requires is just is just the ability to pick yourself up off the floor and go again when you've heard bad news for the tenth straight time, and and um, and that's you know we've achieved a modicum of success. So you know that that's me saying that even in kind of a best case scenario, you know, writing career, uh, the, the the ones that don't go well, it's even harder. So I just think you've got to uh, you've got to be able to kind of be relentless about it. And absolutely relentless. I mean, the, the the metaphor I use is in in the screenwriting class I've taught is the T1000. You know, the T1000 in Terminator 2 is is this liquid metal robot that that can you know basically take any shape. And and near the end of the movie, it gets frozen and shattered into a like you know a thousand pieces on the ground. And then the pieces start to heat up uh, because they're in some smelting factory or something. And the, and and when they do, they they coalesce back into the T1000. And I I've, I metaphorically tell the students, you have to be the T1000. You have to be able to be shattered into a thousand pieces over and over again, and have those pieces come together and relentlessly pursue you know John Connor. You have to turn success into your John Connor and just be as emotionless and relentless and um, just uh, un, un, uh, you know, I guess uninhibited is the wrong word. You just have to be undeterred. You have to never take no for an answer and attack. And that's the best advice I can give apart from just writing your ass off and watching as many uh, you know, movies and TV shows as you can right. and, and just putting in the hours. You know, that, that's, that's the best advice really there is. Good advice. What does Linda Hamilton say about the T one thousand? He will or he will not stop. He will not sleep or something like that. Something like that. Yeah, yeah that has to be you. Yeah, that has to be you. If you if you let the weakness in or the self doubt in or the depression in, when things don't go well, you will likely give up, and that was that will be the ticket that you're the you know back to wherever you came from. You you, right. you really need need to be uh, need to be tough. Absolutely. Um, now we have a. a section near the end of the uh, podcast here called Rapid Fire. Just a few uh, quick questions that we like to ask that are just sort of sure. tongue-in-cheek for fun. Um, so were you named after Rhett Butler, country singer Rhett Atkins, or the Boston uh, University mascot Rhett the Terrier? Yeah, uh, wow. I had not, I have not heard of Rhett the Terrier. That's news to me, so I'm going to immediately Google that when we hang up. <laughs> uh, the... Um, I'm actually named after my grandfather, Everett Reese, and Rhett is short for Everett, so that's oh. the answer to that question. Um, favorite candy, Reese's Peanut Butter Cups or Reese's Pieces? 
Uh, I like Reese's peanut butter cups better, but in truth, I like York peppermint patties even better than those. I'm ashamed to admit, given that, uh, given that it's named a Reese's. When I first went to college, I convinced some people in, in, in our, in my dorm that I was the Reese from Reese's peanut butter cups uh, on a lark and then immediately told a couple people, oh my God, of course I was kidding. That's the most ridiculous thing ever. And somehow the rumor flew around and it came back to me senior year. I was like, someone's like, hey, so I, I, so I understand you're the Reese from Reese's Peanut Butter Cup. And I went, oh my God, I can't believe that thing had legs. <laughs> That's pretty funny. You should have used that. Um, more fun to watch. I know you're from Phoenix. More fun to watch the Phoenix Suns or Joaquin Phoenix. The Phoenix Suns, by far. I mean, no offense to Joaquin Phoenix, but I am a huge diehard Suns fan. Unfortunately, they're not very fun to watch right now. They're terrible, but I'm actually rooting for us to lose so we get it. We get the number one pick in the draft this year because we need to turn our, ourselves around. But there's nothing more fun to watch than a great Phoenix Suns team. Very cool. Um, uh, I know you're a Stanford alum. So why is the Stan- why is Stanford's mascot a tree? Uh, it's because our seal, the university seal has a big, tall redwood tree on it. And I don't know much beyond that. I just know that, you know, Palo Alto, where our school is from, means tall stick or tall tree, I think, uh, where our school is. And so I think the combination of those two things led us to have a tree. Um, I actually know a couple trees, uh, a couple ex-trees, guys who played the tree. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, so I got, got an, I got a little inside scoop on that, but, uh, but yeah, the the tree's a very fun mascot. We're proud to have have it. Well, speaking of the tree mascot, um, certainly might... better than Rat the Terrier. <laughs> uh, certainly. But my next question was, uh, you guys, the, the school costs a lot of money to go to Stanford. Can you guys afford a better tree costume? Well, you know, no. Well, probably yes. But the tree costumes are all self-made, and this is oh. something you learn when you know the trees. Part of the tree's responsibility, that being the, the guy who's in the costume or the woman who's in the costume, uh, is to create their own costume. They get the freedom to do it. I think they're given a little little money uh, to, to make it happen, but it's all, it's all up to them what they do. So uh, I think you'd have to ask each individual tree what their problem was if you take issue with their costume. But I think they do a great job. The trees are very creative. <laughs> like they're, they're, they're pretty fun. We've had palm trees. We've had redwood trees. We've had all kinds of different trees over the years, trees with big lips, uh, and they change every year based on the whim of the person who gets to be the tree. Very funny. I just thought they got them at second-hand stores or something. That's yeah, awesome. I don't know it would be hard to find, I would think. Right. Um, now, uh, if Deadpool and Venom got into a fight, who would win? Um, I would go with Deadpool. I mean, Deadpool kind of can't be defeated for the, for the reason that he, he just keeps, you know, coming back. He is a little T-1000-esque in that, in that sense. And, and, uh, you know, maybe he would be able just to talk Venom's ear off too. He likes to talk. So I, I would, my money would be on Deadpool. Okay. Uh, and lastly, what is the most important rule to survive the zombie apocalypse? Uh... That's a really good question. I guess I'll just go with rule number one, cardio. I mean, cardio, to me, in, in a world with fast-moving zombies, like, it, it would, you would have to have your lungs in shape. It was the first rule that occurred to us when we started to write the screenplay. And I think whatever occurs to you first is, is often the most important. So I'll, I'll go with cardio. Um, oh, and wh- why did you pick the fast-moving zombies as opposed to the classic George Romero shambling zombies? Uh, I... I uh, I just felt, you know, that 
28 Days Later and The New Dawn of the Dead really reinvigorated the genre, and they made it possible for one zombie, one a lone zombie to be a threat by virtue of being fast, and I think that that's what uh, inspired us. Um, uh, it's just the, the slow, shambling zom- zombie, I, you know, no offense, but I've never <laughs> found it very scary because right. I just figured, geez, if I can walk leisurely away, like, what's, what's the problem? <laughs> Right. Uh, so that's why we went with the fast zombies. Gotcha. Gotcha. Uh, well, that's all the time we have for now. Thanks for joining me today, Rhett. You can follow Rhett on Twitter at Rhett Reese. And please visit our website at scriptandscribes.com for more information on all of our guests, archived podcasts, and lots of other great rich interviews and information on writing. And if you have questions about the craft or business of writing, you can send us an email to ask at scriptandscribes.com or send us a tweet to at scriptscribes. There's no and in the middle there, just at Thanks for listening.